Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it contains timeless truths, no matter what time we're living in, no matter what the surrounding culture is like. We thank you that its truths never change because you never change. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your immutability. We thank you that we can always rely on you and your standards. So Lord, I pray that you would remove anything that may distract us or make us upset with what's in your word, that we may all plainly see what's in your word, take it to heart, and allow your spirit to work in us and to make what changes need to be made. We thank you that you are constantly transforming each and every one of us. Every one of us is on a different road of sanctification, different place of sanctification, but we're all being sanctified by you, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you don't leave us where you find us, but you are constantly making us more and more into the image of your Son. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several news articles and websites have covered the story of one of the most famous counterfeiters of our modern era, a man named Art Williams. According to Gizmodo, when Williams was a kid, his father abandoned their family, and his mother and him ended up in a Salvation Army shelter. His mother eventually began a relationship with a con man nicknamed Da Vinci, who took Williams under his wing and taught him how to counterfeit currency. Williams started counterfeiting bills on his own in 1992 with a bootleg copy of Adobe Photoshop, an old Apple computer, and a blueprint printer. He would then take those bills and sell them to local gangsters for 20 cents on the dollar and made $50,000 a month off of those profits just by doing that. In 1996, the federal government issued a new $100 bill, which they claimed was pretty much impossible to counterfeit. The new super bill included a fluorescent security thread, microprinting, shifting ink, and a watermark that was impossible to duplicate. Williams' girlfriend joked with him that he wouldn't be able to crack counterfeiting this new bill, which Williams then took as a challenge. The most difficult aspect of the new bill was getting the paper right. When a store clerk would mark a bill to help determine its authenticity, the mark would turn brown if the paper contained starch, which almost any type of paper other than authentic currency paper contained. Williams tried every kind of paper, but all contained starch. In frustration, Williams' girlfriend went around the house marking every type of paper she could find, including toilet paper. Finally, they discovered that plain old telephone book paper contained no starch. However, telephone book paper was much too thin, so Williams sandwiched a thicker piece of paper between two pieces of telephone book type paper. This sandwiching technique also made it easier to fake the th security thread and watermark. Lastly, in order to fake the shifting ink problem, Williams simply made a rubber stamp of a 100 figure at Kinko's and used iridescent car paint to mark each bill. Williams ended up printing millions of counterfeit $100 bills through the late 90s. And because he and his girlfriend couldn't spend it fast enough, including an expensive Mustang, he even bought loads of kids' toys and then just donated them to charities. 
In 2001, Williams was finally caught in a Chicago hotel with $60,000 in counterfeit bills and drugs. Even though he was able to walk on a technicality, he eventually was busted again and went away to prison. Williams has since been released and has gotten out of the game working a legitimate job and working on entrepreneurial ideas. Quite a story. You see, there are laws in our country that crack down on those who try to fake or counterfeit actual currency. It looks just like real money to the naked eye. It feels just like real money. And when it gets marked with a special pen, it even reveals itself to seem like the real deal. But in reality, it's not. And it's not through a nonchalant glance that the counterfeit is discovered. It's through a careful investigation where a judgment on the legitimacy of the bill is then determined and given. Today we're going to be looking at Paul's use of the word judge. Judging and being judged is such an uncomfortable subject these days. Nobody wants to point the finger and nobody wants the finger pointed back at them. We're going to see what Paul is getting at here when he uses this word judge and how that connects to our individual lives as we make up the local body of Christ's universal church. So the first point that we come to in our passage, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. Uh, turn to chapter 5. We're going to be picking up in verse uh, 3. Now, the first point that we uh, come to uh, in our message today is the definition. Last week, we talked about the specific situation. You can see it right there in the first couple of verses of chapter 5. The specific situation and problem that Paul is addressing here. We find out from the first two verses that a certain man in the congregation of the Corinthian church had been having sexual relations with either his father's wife or his stepmother. We talk about how just as Paul even references in verse 1, you can see it there, this was even unthinkable in the surrounding Greco-Roman world. Besides the specific laws uh, prohi prohibiting this type of relationship in the Jewish law, even the Roman law prohibited this type of relationship. And what were a majority of this man's fellow church members doing about it? They were boasting about it. They were celebrating it. How in the world could they be doing this? It was because they had a gross misunderstanding of what spiritual freedom in Christ actually meant. They thought that because their faith was given to them by God's grace, which is true, won for them by Jesus' death and resurrection, which is true, and given to them by the Holy Spirit, which is true, they could then be going around doing whatever they wanted because in their minds Jesus' blood already covered it anyways. They most likely had a perspective that is very similar to a lot of churches today, that if they didn't worry about any of God's righteous standards and only focused on portraying Jesus' love to each other and everyone else, they were pleasing to God. But in that way, even their portrayal of Jesus' love was grossly misunderstood. See, their understanding of Jesus' love, like many people and even Christians today, Think, they wrongly thought that that love was a blind and blanketed love that meant unlimited acceptance of how everyone wanted to live, regardless of how closely or how far away it was from God's righteous standards. The problem with this version of love, however, is that it does not agree with the Bible as a whole. It's a counterfeit 
love. In fact, it's anti-biblical because there's no desire to be transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. This version of love has permeated many churches today, so much so that when Paul says in verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present, it rubs us the wrong way. Paul is noting that even though it wasn't, he, he wasn't physically present with the Corinthians at the time of his writing this letter to them, he was in spirit with them, and with his apostolic authority, had already passed judgment on the sinning man. A little further on, Paul writes, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Those are pretty strong words, aren't they? But how could Paul write any of this when Jesus already said, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. How could Paul then write the words that he's writing in 1 Corinthians? Paul's words here seem to go against what Jesus has already said. We like to take Jesus' words and point that no other human, even human ministers or church leaders, have the right to point the finger anymore at anyone, lest they want the finger pointed back at them. So we're going to clear up this seeming contradiction right here. Firstly, I want to clear up that both Paul's use of the word judge in 1 Corinthians and Jesus' use of judge in Matthew are the same word in the Greek, but a different word that's used by Paul for condemnation. In Romans 8.1, we read, now, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. It's a different word than what Paul is using for judge here and what Jesus used for judge. This is a very important distinction to make. When we surrender our lives to Jesus and we put our trust for our eternity and his death and resurrection, the condemnation of us as sinners is removed by the blood of Jesus. We are legally declared to be righteous from Jesus' transferred righteousness to us, known as justification, and we have no fear of being banished from his presence unto the second death at the end of time. We have Jesus' presence through the Holy Spirit now, who has sealed us for our eternity, and we will have Jesus for the rest of both our earthly lives and our eternal heavenly lives. That will never change. That is something we will always have. That is the indescribable gift known as salvation that we who have put our trust in this have. At the same time, while we live these earthly lives, we know God still has a lot of work to do on us, doesn't he? Amen is right. He is perfecting the work he started in us the second we put our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sin. God still has his righteous standards. That has never changed. God still has his righteous standards, which, while impossible to obey perfectly, hence the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross for us, he still calls us to seek to obey as much as we possibly can those righteous standards with the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us are off the hook, including the guy standing in front of you right now. The difference between Jesus' words in Matthew 7 and Paul's words in our passage this morning is their context. 
Jesus' words in Matthew 7 are part of his famous Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew 5 and goes through the end of chapter 7. We read in Matthew 5, 1, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and taught his disciples. As some might suggest, this was not just the 12 disciples, for the second to last verse of the sermon says, when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The word disciples at the beginning most likely refers to the entire crowd that was following him and wanted to learn from his teaching. Now flip back to Matthew with me. Flip back. Take your Bible. I'm giving you permission to do this. (laughs) Flip back to Matthew, starting in chapter 5. We're not going to read through this whole thing. Don't worry. I just want you to skim quickly through this with me. Matthew 5. If you had to give a general wiki, Cliff's Notes subject title for what Jesus' point is overall from Matthew 5 through 7, what would it be? Jesus is preaching to a Jewish crowd of people who have been subjected to the Pharisees' burdensome additions and crushing emphasis on just following every single rule of the law and not paying any attention to your heart. That's the audience that Jesus is talking to here. So the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount, as you skim through that, Matthew 5 through 7, is Jesus deconstructing the pharisaical and wrong way of looking at what God wants for his people to focus on and reconstructing the correct and godly way of focusing on the state of your heart and how much of it is loving and obeying God. Do you see that? You can see there over and over, you've heard it said, don't do this. But I say, go above and beyond what you've already been told. Because it's in direct relation to your state of your heart and how much you're showing your love and obedience to God. So taken in that direct context, according to one biblical scholar, the words do not judge others and you will not be judged are specifically referring to the pharisaical practice of habitually being critical of every single thing someone else is doing that don't measure up to what you think. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Specifically, the Pharisees were judging Jesus at every turn and for every perceived misstep against the law, even the most inane and irrelevant ones. He wasn't acting like the Messiah they wanted or expected, and he was preaching a form of righteousness, indeed God's righteousness, that was not matching up with their version of righteousness. In fact, Jesus does not prohibit passing judgment on anything because he goes on with the same breath to say, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye. He could have left it there at that, put a period there. But then he goes on to say, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. See, Jesus could have very well simply left it at, do not judge anyone for any reason. Instead, he clarifies what he says in Matthew 7, 1 through 2, with Matthew 7, 3 through 5. 
He clarifies it by allowing for some kind of correction to be made, but it must be done in love and must be done after looking at your own heart to see if you're first being a good example in that area. That went against the heartless and petty judgment that the Pharisees were good at. Furthermore, when a crowd was judging Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus responded, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Then he goes on to say, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That correct understanding of what Jesus is really getting at in Matthew 7, therefore, does not go against Paul's words in this morning's passage. Do they? No. Okay, I'm getting a lot of blank stares. (laughs) Jesus' words, now that we know what they mean in their context, they do not go against what Paul says in our passage this morning, do they? In fact, they strengthen what Paul says in our passage this morning. They, they strengthen them and give them the power to be effective. Under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the situation that Paul had already passed judgment on without even speaking to the sinning man about because it was so grievous and unholy was such that he gave his decision about. Like I said before, the word Jesus used in Matthew 7 and the word used by Paul here for judge is not the same word for eternal condemnation that we we have already escaped by the blood of Jesus. However, the word used here means to make a decision about, whether in a courtroom setting or in a private conversation. Paul had already made his apostolic decision about what should be done with this person without even speaking to him first. So we talked about the definition. The definition of what the word judge here means, what Paul is getting at. Secondly, we're talking about the decision. And what was that decision that Paul had already made? Verses 4 through 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This seems really heartless to us. But let's fully understand the purpose for why Paul has made this decision regarding this man. Firstly, the end goal that Paul has in prayer and in hope for this man is what? The very last part of verse 5. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the key to understanding this verse. Paul is not retaliating in any way, nor is he brashly acting out in rage. His purpose is to turn the man to repentance and prove the salvific faith he claims is real in his life. And desperate times call for desperate measures. Since this man wasn't, since this sin that this man had committed wasn't even approved by the surrounding pagan Roman law, this, mind, this man's mind was so perverted to even think of doing such a thing, something drastic needed to happen to get his attention. 
an intensely strong means of church discipline needed to occur to break this man from his perverted indulging of his sin nature. So Paul prescribes the measure of discipline he describes in verse 5. This isn't the last time that Paul prescribes this same form of discipline. In his first recorded letter to his protege, Timothy, he references a couple of men who are not living lives in line with true faith at all. And he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. Threw them out of where? The only place Paul had the apostolic authority to throw them out of, the church. These men must have been banned from the church in order to preserve the integrity of that church's testimony that their lives were destroying. This same type of discipline is most likely what Paul is prescribing for the sinning man in 1 Corinthians. At the very least, the man must be banned from partaking in the Lord's Supper along with regular fellowship with the rest of the church. This may or may not have also included banishment from all regular meetings of worship, for Paul notes that one of the purposes of the Corinthian spiritual gifts was to be a witness to unbelievers who came to see what this whole faith in Jesus thing was all about. However, since so much damage had already been done to the Corinthian church, there's good reason to conclude that Paul was prescribing a complete removal of this man from the church because he had already said in verse 2, and you can look at it, that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. This cutting off of the privileges and full fellowship of being a part of the Corinthian church and outright removal from that church was symbolic in that this man was then thrust out into the world without the protection from God from the evil one. After all, who is known as the prince of this world? Satan. We read elsewhere, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. What this means is that Paul was calling on God to allow this man to be tested by Satan himself in a very similar way to Job from the Old Testament. Without the full fellowship and strength to draw upon from his fellow believers and the open invitation for Satan himself to run him through the ringer, this man was in for a rude awakening, wasn't he? Again, what was the purpose? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Paul uses the term flesh very often to describe what? Our residual sinful human nature, right? That, combined with how Paul ends verse 5, gives us the reasonable conclusion that Paul's hope is that this man would feel the sapping of spiritual strength from being cut off from full fellowship with his brothers and sisters, combined with the full power of testing from Satan himself, and if he was truly a believer, become terrified into repentance. That's extremely tough love, isn't it? 
If he wasn't truly a believer and have the Holy Spirit who only indwells those who, are, who truly have surrendered their lives to God through Jesus, then both his physical flesh would be destroyed in death and his spirit or soul would not be saved when he stands before the judgment seat. This is very powerful stuff, isn't it? I told you it was going to be a tough message. But it just goes to show how important the integrity, purity, and testimony of the church is to God. And God will prescribe different measures of discipline to get our attention. Sometimes sin in the church is so grievous and so destructive to the church's testimony that it immediately needs to be cut out with the hope that the sinning party will come to repentance. We will delve into and address Paul's words in the same chapter in verse 11 next week when he says, I told you not to associate with these kinds of people. For now, all we need to recognize is the importance of coming to grips and being honest with ourselves with every area of our lives that we're holding out on God with. If we don't address our various needs that need to be made right with God, what happens? That sin only grows. We see here one of the more extreme cases and how that needed to be dealt with. These areas that we know we're sinning in and we've yet to get them right with God cannot remain undealt with. Sin is still destructive in our lives, even as children of God bought with the blood of Jesus. Sin is sin. We cannot justify it and we cannot ignore it. We cannot belittle it and we cannot compartmentalize it. The only thing we can do with it is repent and turn from it. If not, we know from Scripture that we open ourselves up to God's discipline of us in order to shake us up and lead us to that repentance. Why? Why all the emphasis on the importance of repenting of sin that we still harbor in our lives? Why does God discipline us as his children when we just won't heed the other instruction he's given to us? Because God loves us. That's why. Because God loves us. That's the full picture of God's love. And as we think about Valentine's Day coming up later this week, and we think about love and what different people think about what love is, we get the full picture of God's love for us here. God's love is not acceptance of sinful behavior and outright lifestyles. That's a counterfeit love. That's a superficial love. God's authentic love is breaking us of sinful behavior and outright lifestyles. God's love is not allowing us to continue in our sin. God's love is transforming us from those ways of thinking and living. And literally, thank God for that. Amen? God's love was illustrated in that while we were still rebellious towards Him and His righteous standards, Christ died for us. 
but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us too much to let us harbor sin in our lives. God loves us too much to let it continue. God loves us too much to let us continue to live those lives of sin. God wants us to be transformed into the image of his son and through that have the life most blessed by him. We cannot expect to be blessed by God and still rebel against his definition and standard of righteousness. Similar to how we ended last week's message, God is calling each of us to be honest with ourselves, to stop the justifying, to stop the neglect, to stop the belittling, to stop the compartmentalizing of sin in any area of our lives, and to just get it right with God. This means to repent or make a 180 from it and start taking steps to correcting it. The Apostle John writes, And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. That's not advocating that we need to be perfect, but it's advocating that we need to take this seriously. Do we continue to indulge and harbor the very same sin that Jesus died to remove from us? Or are we showing that Jesus has saved us by the way we live in every area of our lives? Are we seeking to live our lives walking in the Holy Spirit's leading in every area of our lives? Or are we seeking to live our lives walking the way we want to walk? Are we muzzling the Holy Spirit's transformation of our entire lives by refusing to surrender something to Him? Or are we growing in the grace of God through the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of our entire lives into lives pleasing to our Father, which He sent His beloved Son to die and free us to? Let us as one, as one body of Christ, gratefully celebrate what He saved us from and what He saved us to in showing our love for him by getting the sin in every area of our lives right with God, both for our protection and growth, for the glory of God, and for our witness to an unbelieving world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, tough message to work through, but Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it tells us what we don't want to hear because we still need to hear it. Lord, we thank you that we are your children. We thank you that you love us too much to let us continue to harbor sin in our lives. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the power and the courage to be honest with ourselves and to get whatever sin we have in any area of our lives right with you right now, today. To repent of it and start taking steps to correct it. Lord, we thank you that your word was not written in a vacuum. We thank you that you bought us with your very blood. We thank you that that is the definition of love. 
So Lord, I, I pray that as we as one church, one family, each get every area of our lives in line with the image of your son, that you will pour out your blessing and power on us, that we may be a huge and awesome and powerful testimony to our community and to this world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.